Matthew chapter 10, beginning in verse 5. These 12 Jesus sent out, commanded them, saying, Do not go into the way of the Gentiles, and do not enter into the city of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and as you go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. Provide neither gold nor silver nor copper in your money belts, nor bag for your journey, nor two tunics, nor sandals, nor staffs, for a worker is worthy of his food. Now, whatever city or town you enter, inquire who in it is worthy, and stay there till you go out. And when you go into a household, greet it. If the household is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And whoever will not receive you, nor hear your words, when you depart from that house or city, shake off the dust from your feet. Assuredly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. You'll remember in verses 1 through 4, Jesus has called his apostles. He has empowered them. And now he expects them to serve. And you should follow that line of thinking. Jesus has called them to himself. And then Jesus will send them from himself. You know, there comes a time in the, every Christian's life when immaturity should give way to maturity, where giving becomes more important than getting, where sacrifice and selflessness become more important than selfishness. In every Christian's life, there is a time to serve rather than be served. And so, Clearly, service is never intended as a substitute for a godly life. The Lord Jesus isn't calling you to service in lieu of friendship and fellowship with him, holiness and submission to him. That's not what's happening. In the end, the Christian, the believer's talents are not to be laid up for self, but laid out for service. And there seems to be three types of Christians who respond to this call to service. I call them, number one, the rowboat Christian. The rowboat Christian has to be pushed into service. The second is the sailboat Christian. The sailboat Christian will just typically go with whatever way the wind happens to be blowing. And the third is the steamboat Christian. The steamboat Christian make up their mind where they ought to go and then they go. No matter which way the wind is blowing, no matter how difficult the weather. In this section of Matthew's gospel, it's going to give us broad principles, but also specific instructions. The specific instructions applied to the apostles as they began to reach out to the nation Israel. Jesus is going to send them on a short-term mission. 
But the broad principles apply to all disciples in all periods of time. In the next 10 verses, Jesus gives us the basic ingredients for effective ministry. The effective ingredients are going to include the principles that he is our source for service. The instructions that are given specifically for service. And by the way, in verses 16 through 23, Matthew's going to record reactions to service. And in verses 24 through 42, he's going to bring to our attention the cost of service. Jesus sends his disciples out again for their first short-term mission. God will often send us out into our own backyard before he sends us overseas. Jesus had a plan and a purpose for this short-term mission. And part of the plan and part of the purpose includes his care and compassion for the lost. But he also cares for you. And he cares about you. We serve Jesus when we serve others. The lost hear the gospel. The saved grow in grace and in the knowledge of the truth. And the 12 were getting needed experience in proclaiming the gospel. And by the way, with that needed experience comes opportunity. And so it begins with Jesus, our source for service. And we're going to pay close attention to this very opening passage because it's going to set the tone for the entire rest of the chapter. It says in verse 5, these 12 Jesus sent out. You'll remember the 12. We spent four weeks on them. Simon called Peter, Andrew his brother, James the son of Zebedee, John his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew the tax collector, John the son of Alphaeus, Labius whose surname was Thaddeus, Simon the Canaanite, Judas Iscariot who also betrayed them. He sends 12 apostles. Now remember, he calls them to himself. He sends them from himself. And this becomes important right from the start. These are not volunteers. These are men with a divine mandate from Jesus himself. Jesus chose them according to his own sovereign will. These men are under divine authority and divine orders. In Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5, you'll remember that Jeremiah, as he's being told by the Lord about his own unique call, hears from the Lord, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you. I ordained you as a prophet to the nations. Not everyone is an apostle. Okay, let's be blunt. No one is really an apostle except for, in the broadest sense of the term, someone who's called by Jesus and sent by Jesus. Almost certainly, very few people are called to be a prophet to the nation. But what each and every one of us have in common is that Jesus has called us to himself. And there will come a point where Jesus will send us from himself for the task assigned to each and every one of us. And this is part of the most important point. 
All saints are called to serve. One of the great tragedies of our time is that many people want to claim Christ, but refuse service to Christ. They want to claim all the benefits of being a Christian, but few of the responsibilities. And then those who do embrace the responsibilities often do so half-heartedly, inconsistently, or selfishly. Mark's gospel will tell us that Jesus will send them out in pairs in Mark chapter 6, verse 7. And so why does Jesus do that? He sends them off in pairs, I'm going to suggest to you, to ward off loneliness and isolation. God will often give us like-minded people who will stand with us, who share our vision, who share our dream, who share our philosophy of ministry, of what it means to love him and serve him and to present the gospel and to evangelize the lost and to disciple the saints. God may have given you a burden for the lost, for the young or for the old, for the homeless or for the helpless, for the shut-in. Loneliness in ministry is fertile ground for depression and disappointment. We're often tempted or Satan will take advantage through discouragement or self-pity. But when God gives you like-minded companions, you can encourage one another. You can build one another up. You can pray for one another. You can support one another. You can encourage one another, and then you can also hold each other accountable in real ministry. And if you've ever wondered, if you've ever asked yourself this question, what has God called me to do? What has Jesus assigned for me? What's my assignment of service? I've discovered that God, by his Holy Spirit, will give us clues in order to just discover how that service works. And the clue begins with the passion of your heart. As a matter of fact, in order to answer the question, what is it that God has called you to do? You should ask another question. What am I passionate about? What do I care about? What do I care about almost more than anything else? If you have a burning desire to minister to the lost, to people overseas, to the vulnerable, to the helpless, to the hopeless, to the old, to the people who are, who are in difficult, challenging situations, then chances are you have part of your answer. Do you have a burden for older people or younger people? God's word tells us that God places passions in our hearts. I doubt seriously that Satan motivates us to care for the homeless, to care for the helpless, to care for the poor. Satan isn't interested in the truth, and so he's very rarely interested in discernment ministries or binding up the brokenhearted or setting the captives free. In Psalm 37, 4, we read, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he'll give you the desire of your heart. And so perhaps the answer begins there with the desire of your heart. But I'm going to suggest to you that even though it begins with desire, it's going to continue with confirmation. What do I mean by that? What I mean by that is usually there are men and women, elders, leaders in the church 
who can provide us an additional clue. Do people in the church recognize your gift? Do they see your heart of generosity, of encouragement? Do they see in you a desire to teach or preach or reach the lost? When a person has a strong desire to pray or preach or teach, when a person has a strong desire to be used by God or to serve in ministry, often leaders in ministry will confirm that gift. And by the way, if the leaders in ministry don't confirm the gift, does that mean you don't have the gift? Not necessarily. Even leaders in church can get it wrong. There might be leaders in church say, clearly you're not called to do this or that, but then you do it and guess what? God rewards you. Imagine you believe that you're a football player, but you can't catch the ball. Imagine you think that you're a football player, but you hate getting hit. Well, the truth is, if you don't go out for the team, you're, you're never going to make the team. And if you do make the team, the chances are you are going to get hit. But the proof is literally in the proverbial pudding. So confirmation is going to reinforce passion. And qualifications for ministry are given in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1 where it can be found about ministry callings and ministry desires. But I'm going to suggest to you that there's a third thing, and that's an opportunity. If passion and confirmation are joined together with opportunity, then the chances are you're going in the right direction. When a person has a strong desire, confirmed by the church, and then an open door of service, it very well might be that God is calling you. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 9, it says, For a great and effective door has opened to me, and there are many adversaries, Paul writes. This is important. And the reason why it's important is because sometimes when there's adversaries and opposition, we might think, well, God's not in it. I, I thought I wanted to do that. But in order to do that, I might have to make some sacrifices. I might face some challenges. Guess what? Opposition to what God has asked you to do might be proof positive. It's exactly what God wants you to do. And so we see service, our specific task. Look at the end of verse 5. It says, and he commanded them, saying, do not go into the way of the Gentiles. And do not enter into a city of the Samaritans. The word commanded or instructed, as it's translated elsewhere, is very interesting. The Greek word is para, angelo, which has a number of different applications in the New Testament. Para means with, and angelo means message. Here, it's translated commanded. In the military, it was used by a commanding officer to issue a command. In that sense, it means an order. And an order in the military from the commanding officer means unquestioning obedience. As a legal term, it meant the order of a court officer, like a summons or a subpoena. And so if you're an officer of the court and you issue the summons, you must of necessity 
respond. You can't disregard the court's orders. Failure meant punishment. In an ethical sense, it might mean a moral obligation. If a doctor orders complete bed rest or says, I need you to take your medicine or I need you to set some time aside so that you can heal. In rebellion and disobedience, you might disobey the doctor. But the doctor is giving you a command not for to punish you, but to benefit you. And so the idea is you have to take your medicine. When you realize it's Jesus who's called you and it's Jesus who's gifted you, it's Jesus who's empowered you, it's Jesus who commands you, you begin to realize, wow, I I don't have a choice but to obey. Now remember, the apostles were commanded, do not go into the way of the Gentiles or those areas possessed by the Samaritans. This was not the time to proclaim to the Gentiles and the Samaritans the way of salvation. This is an important principle. The fact that this wasn't the time to proclaim salvation to the Samaritans and the Gentiles didn't mean that there would never come a time. It just meant this time was a different time and a unique time. It also doesn't mean that Jesus was a racist or a xenophobe. You may not know what a xenophobe is. Xenos is the Greek word for stranger. Phobe is the Greek word which we get fear or an irrational fear. So xenophobia meant an irrational fear of strangers. Jesus had healed a Samaritan woman of Sychar. He had healed the Gentile centurion servant. We know that Jesus doesn't hate Samaritans and hate Gentiles. But the proclamation would begin with the Jewish people. God had revealed his promise to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. For years, God spoke to the Jewish people about a Messiah who would come and a kingdom who would come. And so God reveals his promise to his people, the chosen people. But remember, even when we use that term, God chose the Jewish people to bring forth the Messiah. And God's chosen servant, the Messiah, was to be a light both to Jew and Gentile. And then the Jewish people were meant to be a light to the world. The point, Jesus is the source. He sets the standard. He uses the commands. Let's connect the dots together. Jesus calls them to himself and then sends them from himself with a command that he himself has initiated. And so, I want you to think about this for a moment. They're called to be ministers and servants. Jesus hasn't called them to prepare the meal, but to serve the meal. And that might be true of you as well. You're not called to prepare the gospel or make up your own message. Jesus is the message. Jesus is the gospel. All you have to do is offer the bread to a starving world. Are all all believers commanded to preach? No. 
But are all believers commanded to serve? The answer is yes. Your job is to simply be in the position that God has called you to be in. Let me put it a little bit differently. Your job is simply God's way of providing the means for you to serve Jesus. I'm going to repeat that. Your job is simply God's way of providing the means for you to serve Jesus. And this might be a revolutionary concept to some of you because you never in your wildest dreams believed that your job was to serve Jesus. You thought that your job was packing groceries or being a school teacher or whatever it is that you happen to be, a butcher, a baker, a candlestick maker. But whatever it is, you're called to serve Jesus. And by the way, the pastor of the church doesn't call you to service. Jesus calls you to service. And so in verse 6 it says, But go, rather, to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. The decree is followed by instructions concerning a destination. He says, go, not stay. And he says, go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. This is an idiomatic way of saying to the Jewish people. They were not to go to the Gentiles, ethnos, or even to the Samaritans. The time was still future. And by the way, there was a future time for the Samaritans and for the Gentiles. But again, this becomes an important point in each and every one of our lives. The fact that God has asked us to do something specifically now doesn't mean that there's not going to be more instructions to follow later. And that is exactly what's going to happen in the text. By the time we get to the end of the text, in Matthew chapter 28, Jesus is going to say, but go into all the world, teaching them everything that I've taught you, saying that I'm with you even to the end of the world. The time was still future for the others. The gospel message was going to eventually get to them. But this was a necessary arrangement. Paul would later write, even to the Gentiles, that the gospel comes to the Jew first. And then to the Gentile. The people of Israel have to be given every opportunity to fulfill their destiny. I want you to think about that just for a moment. The people of Israel were to be afforded each and every opportunity in order for them to fulfill their destiny that God had assigned for them. But I'm going to suggest to you that it's true in each and every one of your lives. That we have to give the opportunity for God to fulfill his destiny in each other. That's my job this morning. It's to remind you of the destiny that God has assigned to you. To give you an opportunity to fulfill the destiny that God has for you. But then it's extended to everyone in your life. To your husband, to your wife, to your children and your grandchildren. To the circle of influence that God has entrusted to you in the place where you work and the people that you serve. The phrase... The lost sheep of the house of Israel is so powerful in its brevity and simplicity. The fact that Jesus sees them as lost sheep means that they are lost. And that he's the shepherd. You see, the truth is that's one of the very biggest dangers that each and every one of us face as well. 
It's to call found what Jesus says is lost and to say what is lost when Jesus says is found. And so if you're under the impression that your wife or your husband or your children or your grandchildren, the people you work with and the community that you live in, that they're just fine the way that they are, I would invite you to ask Jesus, what's the condition, what's the spiritual condition of my husband, my wife, my children, my grandchildren? What is their spiritual condition? What is the spiritual condition of the people that you've placed on my heart? The Lord Jesus is in effect saying, begin at the beginning. Go to the place that I've entrusted to you. Later the Lord will make them witnesses to the entire world. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. Begin with your people. Begin with your family. You may have grown up in a religious tradition or you may have grown up in circumstances that were way far away from hope. Way far away from grace. Way far away from forgiveness. And so Jesus invites you to take them to the place of hope. Also, someone has rightly said, if you aim at nothing, you will hit nothing. I'm going to suggest to you that service should begin with your own people, but it should also be specific. When a ministry is not focused or specific, it's often doomed to mediocrity. Doctors often specialize in a specific field of medicine because the human body is so complex. And God will often give people in the body of Christ a burden for specific service. You may have a mighty burden for discernment or education, discipleship or evangelism. God gives different objectives, goals, dreams to different people. And God never asks any person to do everything, no matter how gifted they are. But the Lord hasn't called you to do everything for everyone. But I'm going to suggest that God has called you to do something for someone. So ministry begins with someone. In other words... Ministry isn't something that you simply do for other people. Ministry begins with someone. Not everyone, but someone. And then look at our message, the gospel, our defined message. Jesus says, again, let's connect the dots. Jesus calls them to himself. He sends them from himself with a specific command and a defined message. He says, and as you go, preach, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus gives them a specific message. Go, don't stay. Preach, don't remain silent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. What in the world does he mean by that? What does he mean by that? And what would a Jew listening in the first century think of that? We sang it in the worship service in part. Jesus is coming soon. The king is coming soon. The moment that you say this message, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. How soon is it coming? 
How will we be able to recognize the king? How will I gain entrance into this place? What do you have to do? Obviously, we're living in a kingdom right now. The Bible characterizes it as a kingdom of darkness and as a kingdom that's wicked and detached and, and away from God. The first thing you should note, and you're always safe if you begin with what Jesus says. Remember, Jesus calls them to himself, sends them from himself with a message that he himself has given. The reason why this becomes important to each and every one of you is you will always be safe. You will always be safe if you say what Jesus says. That makes sense to you, doesn't it? Have you ever been talking with someone and you said, what am I going to say to this person? What should I say to them? Say to them what Jesus has said to you. What has Jesus said to you? Well, he said he loved me. Tell him. He said that he'll forgive my sin. Tell him. You see, that's the gospel. That's the gospel message. The first thing that you should give is the message that Jesus gives. Both the church and the world are becoming increasingly confused about Christ's message. They might say, here's what the world needs to know. Climate and weather change could mean the extinction of the planet Earth. That's not our message. Well, what about fantasy football? Okay, we could incorporate that in the message. No, that's not our message either. Ours isn't a political message or a, or a social or a cultural or an environmental message. Ours is the gospel message. And the gospel is simple. God is holy. Man is sinful. Sin is the great thing that keeps us from God. Jesus came to the earth. Remember, to the Jewish person, there was a promise from the very beginning in the book of Genesis that God would send a Messiah. As you go through Exodus and Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy, and you walk through the history of the Jewish people, the call of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the, the going into, the, 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 into Egypt, and then the release and the giving of the law, the whole message for the Jewish people has been a message that God loves you and cares about you and is willing to redeem you. God is holy. Man is sinful. Sin is the thing that keeps you from God. Jesus lives and dies and comes back to life. In 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 5, Paul wrote, For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture, that he was buried, that he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures that he was seen by Cephas that's Peter then by the 12 a real Jesus came back to life and was seen alive John MacArthur writes Satan's surest way of making the gospel impotent is simply to keep it from being understood when the gospel is clouded with political, cultural, social, economic, environmental, ecclesiastical, and every other such cause, its message is muddled and its power diluted, unquote. Did the apostle simply say, the kingdom of heaven is at hand? I suspect that they elaborated on that theme. 
Because the moment that they came and they showed up and they said that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, I'm sure that people were going to ask the question, what king and who's the king? What kingdom and who's the king? And what's going to be different about this kingdom than the kingdom that we're already living in? I suspect that they would have remembered what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5 and chapter 6 and chapter 7. The kingdom is the place where God rules. The kingdom is the place where the Messiah is enthroned. All of Jesus' instructions, both private and public, were the truths and the principles of life. As he would begin to talk about sin and death and a resurrection, there are social and political and personal benefits from the gospel. But the gospel remains clear. Mankind needs a savior from sin. And that's the message of the Christian. As Billy Graham said it in 1972 at the Explo convention in Dallas, Texas, when he said, if Jesus is everything that he claims to be, then you can become everything that you were meant to be. Think about that. If Jesus is everything that he claims to be, then you're given an exciting opportunity to become everything that you were meant to be. And what were you meant to be? You were meant to be free. You were meant to be forgiven. You were meant to be cleansed. You were meant to have a right relationship with God. You were meant to be reconciled to him. The gospel transforms people. And when a person is transformed... A family is transformed. And when a family is transformed, a community is transformed. And when a, when a community is transformed, a nation can be transformed. The deep problems that our nation faces will not be solved economically or socially or politically because at its fundamental root, the problem is spiritual. We live in a world that is estranged from God and they need a savior. And so confirmation, our divine substantiation, look what it says in verse eight. Here's the message. The kingdom of heaven is at hand and now here's the instructions. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons, freely you've received, freely give. Remember, Connect the dots. Jesus has called them to himself. He sends them from himself with a message that he himself gave them. And these instructions. I want you to reread the verse. Heal the sick. Cleanse the leper. Raise the dead. Cast out demons. Do you know what all of these things have in common? They're impossible to do unless Jesus empowers you to do them and gifts you to do them. If he calls you to himself and sends you from himself and asks you to do this himself, he's going to have to empower you to do this because guess what? I don't know anyone who can heal the sick, cleanse the leper, raise the dead, or cast out demons apart from Jesus apart from a miracle, apart from the supernatural. I've never, I've never in my entire life, I've never healed a single person. But I've prayed for people to be healed. Have you? Haven't you prayed for people and said, Lord, heal them? 
you, and you said, Lord, heal them. You didn't say, Lord, I'm going to heal them. Be healed. Hey, wait a minute. This isn't working. That's because it's impossible for you to do this unless Jesus asks you to do it. I've never raised a person from the dead, but I've seen spiritually dead people come back to life in Christ. I've never cleansed a leper, I've, but I've seen plenty of people labor in love to alleviate the suffering of people who are hurting and sick. I've never cast out a demon, but Jesus has used me to cast out demons out of people suffering from occult bondage. The whole point, when Jesus calls you, when Jesus gives you the task, he's going to confirm the task and substantiate the task. A doctor, a lawyer, a pastor will hang their little diplomas and documents on their wall to list their qualifications and their authority to practice. Those who represent Jesus and his message have to be, have divine credentials to confirm the divine mission and the divine message. Jesus exercises power and authority and then confirms that power and authority with real miracles. And Jesus imparts the same power and authority to these men in order to confirm the message, but I'm going to suggest to you that he does it for one other reason as well. He does it because he really cares about people. He cares about their life and he cares about their condition and he cares about the bondage and the suffering and the darkness. The 12 have had little training. They didn't graduate from an accredited seminary. They're not a part of the religious establishment. And the signs of a true apostle, according to Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12 says this, quote, Truly the signs of an apostle were accomplished among you with all perseverance in signs and wonders and mighty deeds, unquote. Let me say a few things about those credentials. Healing the sick, cleansing the leper, raising the dead was in part to demonstrate God's power. It was in part to help people. But what if I suggested to you that healing the sick, cleansing the leper and raising the dead did they heal every single sick person? Did they cleanse every single leper? Did they literally have a zombie apocalypse where they just literally rifled through every single house and every single dead person would come back to life and every single grave would, would emerge? I'm going to suggest to you that that's not what happened. I'm going to suggest to you that miracles happened. And the miracles communicated the tender heart of God, his care for the sick, the suffering, the desperate, the poor, the needy. But remember what the point was. The point was that the message was true. The fallen world has little compassion. The godless often oppress the poor and the needy. The godless persecute the poor, according to Psalm 10.2. They place heavy burden on them and defraud them, according to Amos 5.11. False prophets prey on the sheep rather than pray for the sheep. False prophets abuse the sheep and use them for their own means. So what better divine credentials? The faithful witness of the least gifted Christians should be able to unleash this kind of spirit spiritual power because it's been unleashed in your life 
Because you've experienced his love. You've experienced his grace. You've experienced his mercy. And it's okay for you to tell people about it. And by the way, when Jesus says, freely you have received, freely give, do we charge for the gospel? The answer is no. Do some people charge for the gospel? The answer is yes. But they're charlatans and they're frauds. And by the way, is it possible for a charlatan and a fraud to preach the gospel and people be saved? I think that the answer is yes. Let me give you an example. Imagine we were going to make a, a movie about Paul the Apostle. And we have in the movie Paul preaching, or we have Paul speaking, or he's dictating his letter to the Corinthians, and he preaches the gospel, and he preaches the fact that God loves you, and that Jesus loves you, and that he died for your sin, and he rose from the dead, and you can be reconciled with the Father. Is it possible that an unbelieving actor preaching the gospel could lead other people to Christ? The answer is yes. Do you want to know why? Because it's not their motive that saves people. It's the gospel itself. This is why Paul writes that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to them that believe. The gospel can be preached from selfish motives by complete frauds. In the days of Jesus, professional healers and exorcists would travel and they would treat the sick and they would cast out demons for a price. The Talmud required the rabbi to teach the commands of Moses for free. They were told Moses received the law freely from God and the rabbis were not to charge for teaching it. The only exception, there was one exception in, in first century Israel. There was one exception. And that was when parents were shirking their duty. When they refused to train their own children, they would sometimes hire a tutor to teach their children. But that was the only exception that I could think of. So how do you fund the ministry then? Here's what Jesus says. Confidence is our divine provision. Look what he says in verse 9. Provide neither gold nor silver nor copper in your money belts. Gold, silver, and copper in the first century was money. They didn't have script or paper. Paper wouldn't be invented until way, way later. Paper was a promise to pay. Gold, copper, and silver was keeping your promise. He says, provide neither gold nor silver nor copper in your money belts, nor bag for your journey, nor tunics, nor sandals, nor staffs, for a worker is worthy of his food. Now, whatever city or town you enter, inquire who in it is worthy and stay there till you go out. I grew up in a world and in a ministry where my pastor used to say, where God guides, he provides. I once said that and a person got very angry with me and says, where in the Bible does it say where God guides, he provides? Verse 9, verse 10, verse 11. It doesn't literally say where God guides, he provides, but the principle is there. The principle is this. Why does Jesus give these instructions if it doesn't mean to trust God for the provision? That's what he's saying. 
Remember, we're connecting the dots. They were called to Jesus. They were sent from Jesus with a message that Jesus himself communicated. With that message came responsibility to do exactly what he asked to do and then to trust him for the provision. The apostles were to trust God for whatever they needed for the ministry. And they were to assume that if the provision was not made, then guess what? That must not be a part of what God has asked them to do. And so we're to trust God for whatever we need for ministry. I want you to think about this closely. Because if Jesus calls you to himself and then sends you from himself with a message that he himself asks you to preach with a duty that he himself has asked you to do, then he says, I'll make a provision for you. The, the apostles weren't to demand payment. They weren't to amass a fortune. They weren't to take gold, silver, or copper. And in verse 10 where it says the bag, the bag in verse 10, it says, nor bag for your journey. The bag that they're talking about was a bag that was given in order to help along the road. I don't know if you've ever been on a journey where your husband, your wife, or your mom, or your dad say to you, take a sack lunch. You're going to get hungry while you're on the road. Jesus is in effect saying, don't take money and don't even pack yourself a lunch. What? What in the world does this mean? Inns were few and far between and expensive. The tunic was like a coat or a cloak. It was like an outer garment that you would use like a blanket. Sandals were necessary to keep your feet from being chewed up on the road. But just think about it. Think about you on the road and you get a flat tire and you don't have a spare. Why do you have a spare in your car? So that you can get back on the road. Why would they have an extra set of sandals in their bag? Because sometimes you blow out a flip-flop. I know I keep wanting to say wasting away in Margaritaville. It's now in my mind. I've got to get back to the text. <laughs> a staff was used for self-protection against thieves or bullies or wild animals. Here's the point. The apostles left with the absolute basics because God himself established that the worker is worthy of support. I want you to think about this again. He calls them to himself. He sends them from himself with a message that he himself has given to them on a mission, a short-term mission. And by the way, there are very few ministers today who never demand anything or who never put a price on the work that they do or trust the Lord to meet all of their needs. He says, enter the town, inquire who is worthy. Note the word worthy. He doesn't say wealthy. He doesn't say, note the person who's flush. Note the person who has the biggest house in town and a jacuzzi and who has great food. That's not what he says at all. Worthy in this instance seems to mean godly. They were to stay with people who were known 
for their character and their godliness. And they were to stay in that place until the mission was complete. In other words, they weren't to go, you know what, we're going to stay with you till we can find something better. You know, thank you for your generosity. Thank you for your hospitality. But those people have a jacuzzi and a pool and an open refrigerator. No, they weren't to be looking around for better or more luxurious accommodations. They were to be humble. They were to be content. They were to be satisfied. And then the results. Look at the results. Our focus is to be on the responsive. Look what it says in verses 12 and 13. It says, the apostles were, it says, and when you go into a household, greet it. To this very day, when you go to Israel and you enter a Jewish person's home, whether secular or religious, they'll typically say to you, shalom, welcome. That's the greeting. The apostles were to focus on the people who were receptive to the gospel, and the house doesn't simply refer to a place where the apostles stayed, but rather the various houses where they would minister. So a worthy house is one where their witness and their word were appreciated and accepted as being from God. And then they would say shalom. And when you say shalom, it means peace. And it carries with it the idea of peace for your body, peace for your soul, peace for your spirit. The peace was to be extended to the entire household, family, slaves, workers. The implication is that an open heart and an open heart home receives the richest blessing. Jesus will say in Matthew 10 41, he who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet receives a prophet's reward. He who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man receives a righteous man's reward. And so when he says, and when you go into the household, greet it. And if the household is worthy, let your peace remain upon it. The idea is sometimes God will call you to minister in places where people are open and receptive. And sometimes He'll call you to minister in places where they're not open and they're not receptive. Certain people and certain cultures seem utterly hostile to the gospel. And the same is true in our own culture and our own society. In the public education system, have you noticed how hostile they are? You can't say Jesus. You can't, beware when you say Bible. What, you, you'd think that, I, that I'm cussing. You want to take me to the principal's office and wash my mouth out with soap because I said, God loves you. Jesus loves you. La, 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 la. You can't say that. Well, what, what does all of this mean? Our focus is to concentrate on those who are open to the gospel. Jesus promises satisfaction for those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. God's mandate is the gospel should be preached, listen carefully, to those who want to hear it most. And he says about divine indifference or rejection or the unresponsive, but if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And whoever will not receive you or hear your words, when you depart from that house or city, shake off the dust from your feet. Assuredly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment for that city. I want you to think about it. Jesus is basically saying, 
preach to those who are open, walk away from those who aren't. Sometimes we waste enormous amounts of energy and resources on those who persist in rejecting the gospel. We take 80 or 90% of our resources and focus it on atheists, scientists, and skeptics. Does that mean we ignore the atheist, the scientist, and the skeptic? The answer is no. But we have to put first things first. The statement not worthy, let your peace return to you, is an oriental expression which means to lose favor or to withdraw blessing. Imagine you walk into a bank or you walk into a store or you walk into a school and you say, God bless you. And they go, I don't want God to bless me. Have it your way. Jesus loves you. Keep your religion to yourself. The Bible's true. Jesus loves you. He rose from the dead. Shut up. Well, what does all of this mean? This isn't so much losing a blessing, but refusing a blessing. This isn't losing peace. This is refusing peace. Imagine you say to a person, shalom, and they strap a bomb to their body and they walk into your school and they blow themselves up. Shalom. I don't want peace. I don't want peace and I don't want you. I don't want peace and I don't want you. God can offer peace. God can offer blessing. God can offer forgiveness and reconciliation. But it means nothing to the person who refuses it. Now, I'm not going to do this. This is not trick-or-treat time. But imagine if I said to each and every one of the people here, everyone, hey, I'd like to give you a $20 gold piece. How many of you would you say, I'm a, I'm a, I'm not, that's, how many of you would accept it? almost an ounce of gold. How many would refuse it? Looking for a hand, looking for a hand. All of them would accept it. Oh, by the way, if for whatever weird reason you are that person, I'm not going to take your gold. Those of you who would take the gold, is the gold valuable whether they accept it or reject it? Would you go, could I have your piece that he offered to you? See, you're going like that. You're saying yes. Because you understand that the value of gold isn't connected with a person's acceptance or rejection of it. And so it is true of God's love. In ancient days, Jewish travelers would literally shake the dust off the soil of the pagan country, off their clothes. They didn't want to bring pagan dirt into the holy land. And so to shake off the dust off your feet was an idiomatic expression to treat them the same way you would treat pagans. And by the way, most Jews considered the Gentile, the pagan, out of touch with God's love, out of touch with God's peace, out of touch with God's favor, out of touch with God's word and God's love. Have you ever had a Jehovah's Witness come to your home? Sometimes after speaking to you, they'll shake off the dust of their feet into the gutter. They think that they're pronouncing judgment on you. That's what they believe. They'll put their left foot in. They'll put their left foot out. They'll put their left foot in and they'll shake it all about. What are they doing? 
They think that they're bringing God's curse and God's judgment on you, but guess what? There's certain things that God only reserves to himself. Judgment that God reserves for himself. The passage doesn't invite us to write people off or refuse friendship who reject the Bible. Hey, by the way, what do you do if your husband, your wife, your child, what do you do if your teacher, your boss, what do you do if the people who are important to you repeatedly, repeatedly, repeatedly say, no, thank you, no, thank you, no, thank you. Do you stop? I'm going to suggest to you That people who resist, reject, and oppose the gospel, that sometimes we should put our attention elsewhere. That doesn't mean we write that person off and we never talk to them about the love of God ever again. God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah with fire from heaven. Only recently have scholars claimed to have found any of its remains. Jesus is in effect saying... Those who reject the gospel of Jesus face a far greater judgment on the day of judgment. A day that he's reserved for himself. But here's the point. In this particular passage, each and every one of you will experience a season of being served but I'm hoping that the season for service has come for you. Remember, as we connect the dots, Jesus called them to himself. He sent them from himself with a message that he himself spoke with an empowering presence in order to do exactly what was being asked. He said, focus your attention on people who want to hear and don't be discouraged If they reject the gospel, keep moving on, keep pressing on, keep going forward. Because guess what? The season of service might come way sooner than any of you ever imagined. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time and thank you for the the message The message that you love us and that you care about us. That even when we focus on one particular group, that doesn't mean that's the only group. And that doesn't mean that there's no future. And so, Heavenly Father, if you're preparing us for a short-term mission, Lord, we pray that we're being called to you, by you. Lord, it makes perfect sense that we would want to be sent by you with a message about you and from you. And so, Lord, again, I thank you and I praise you for the privileges that we have. Lord, we pray that passion and confirmation and opportunity would give us an opportunity to serve. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.